I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do, can do. This is Bill Duncliffe, and this is the inaugural podcast of Can Do, a podcast about all things horse racing, some history, some handicapping, and some humor. Thanks for joining us, and let's get right to our first guest. I'm pleased and honored to welcome as my first guest in this inaugural podcast, none other than Michael Blowen, the founder of Old Friends Farm Thoroughbred Retirement Facility with locations in Georgetown, Kentucky, and Greenfield Center, New York. Michael, thanks so much for joining us, and welcome. Oh, well, thank you, Bill. I really appreciate it. I'm honored that you thought of me for your first guest, and I I hope people continue to uh, tune in. Well, you run a great facility down there, and I really want to get into talking about that. But I want to first talk about, um, my friends the Grateful Dead would have called it the long, strange trip. You've gone from Boston Globe film critic to founder of Old Friends Farm. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Sure. When I was a kid growing up, I really didn't care much about horse racing. I didn't even think it should be considered a, a sport. Um, and it wasn't until I got into my 20s and was uh, hired by the Globe at that time as the assistant uh, movie critic that I got into it. And the reason I got into it wasn't because I loved the horses. It was because I had an editor at the Globe named Robert Taylor, who since passed away. But Robert was a, a, a literally a genius editor, and he could take my bland gray copy and with a you know flip of a pen, he'd move a paragraph or change a word or take something out and add something. And within literally within two or three minutes, it was like watching somebody do an old Rubik's cube. He would turn my copy into something something a lot better than I turned in. Believe me. And one day he called me and asked me if I wanted to go to the racetrack, and he was meeting some friends, and we all went to the racetrack together, and I fell in love with it. Well, basically, I fell in love with the drinking and the betting. (laughs) (laughs) As do we all. (laughs) That's where where it started. You know, you can sit here and drink beer and bet the horses, and and he explained to me how how to read the racing forum and, and all that, and I just became enchanted with the whole thing, and and so all the time I was at the Globe, the, you know, I was uh, I was uh, going to, you know, spending uh, Saturday afternoons at uh, at Suffolk Downs, sometimes betting the live card, sometimes betting the the simulcast, and having a really, really good, really good time. And then as years went on, uh, I decided I really needed to uh, learn more about the horses if I was going to be a better handicapper. Well, that was a another classic error on my part because <laughs> I, I well it was an error in one way it was it didn't help it didn't help my handicapping but I apprenticed myself out to uh, uh, people uh, in New England who remember Carlos Figueroa the king of the fairs sure well I I apprenticed myself out to Carlos for almost two years and I did got up in the morning and I did stalls and and uh, walked wow. hots and learned that and I went from a tremendous fear of these huge animals that that uh, were very intimidating uh, to falling in love with them. And once I fell in love with them, then that was the end of everything because, you know, as you well know, once you fall in love with anything, uh, you know, your life is going to take some turns that you are completely unexpected. So I fell in love with with these amazing athletes, and I realized at the end of the day that, uh, they weren't being treated exactly the way I thought. You know, when I first went there, Carlos, I'd say to Carlos, what happened to that horse? He'd say, he'd say, oh, he's going to, I found a good home for him. He's going to a riding academy in Maine. Oh. 
But hearing this story several times in the track kitchen from other trainers and that's and I realized there must be like 10,000 riding. <laughs> Boy. It occurred to me that that's not exactly what was going on. So uh, I uh, found out that, that you know, the slaughter trucks would show up on uh, every week and fill their trucks up. So I decided maybe if the opportunity ever presented itself, I would uh, I would try and do something about it personally and, and, and see what would be possible. And then as luck would have it, uh, the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, uh, after I took the Globe buyout, my wife, Diane White, some people remember Diane as a terrific uh, Globe columnist. Um, yep. My wife and I, uh, uh, I gave myself uh, in 2001 a trip to the Belmont Stakes, the one that Point Given won, and I ran to some people from the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation. And I had done a story for the Globe years earlier on a horse named Saratoga Episode, who was retired by the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation and, and sent down here to uh, Lexington to uh, work in the prison with the, with the prison population and be retired. And I thought, boy, this is a great alternative to, uh, to the other. Well, as luck would have it, they offered me a job. And I wasn't doing anything, obviously. So I took it. And I was the operations director for the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation for a year and a half. And when I said to Diane, you know, we live, you know, here we're living in urban Massachusetts, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're going to rural Kentucky. And I said to Diane, I said, uh, I want to move down here to Midway, Kentucky, and see if we can do something about this. And I said, you know, both our parents had died, and and, and my son had moved to Australia where he makes movies, and uh, and so we had no obligation. I said, look, if we don't like it after a year, year and a half, we can just move back. Big deal. So. Oh, wow. After about 20 minutes, she came back to me, and she says, okay, I'll come with you under one condition. I said, okay, what's that? And she said, that when I leave you, you won't come looking for me. <laughs> so <laughs> so she's still here. The horses are here. And after a year and a half with the TRF, I decided that I didn't want to start a group that was just going to replicate what other groups were doing a really good job with mm-hmm. that is uh, rehoming horses and and retiring geldings and mares but none of the groups then were taking any stallions and i thought well from my movie background i knew what people how people were around the the great uh movie stars and the celebrities and things and how they got excited and i said well it's the same thing with these horses um oh, wow. i think uh, that's the way i feel about yeah. the horses i wouldn't have stepped foot in kentucky if bull forbes and uh had lived at the at the horse park with uh, with Forgo uh, years and years earlier. So that's how it all began. Michael, you referred to the fact that, uh, you know, there's the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation and, of course, your own operation. And uh, there are actually multiple retirement initiatives, I guess, for horses as well, right? The, I remember the first I heard about it was um, therapeutic uses at, at prison farms and, 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 and other types of uh, therapeutic uses to help people, uh, give people a skill, I think, in the prisoner's cases and other cases to help people work through whatever kind of traumatic injuries they've, they've, they've suffered, whether they be psychological or physical. So I would imagine you have a, a network of all those folks that you kind of work with. Is that fair to say? Yes, absolutely. Though I'm glad you brought that up. There's an organization called the Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance. It's been one of the best things that's ever happened to horse racing. They, uh, what they do is they do, they have two major obligations. One, they raise money, uh, and, 
and provide grants to institutions such as ours. And the second thing they do, and this might even be more important, is they have an accreditation process that's very, very, very uh, detailed. It, uh, you know, we went through, because we're a nonprofit, you know, we went through an IRS audit a few years ago. And the IRS audit was easy compared to the things that we had to go through to get this accreditation from the wow. uh, thoroughbred out to Carolina. I mean, they go through your farm and in your books and every part of your operation with a fine-tooth comb. And, uh, and they don't just hand out these accreditations. I know, I know there were several times in the middle of ours that where I would think, you know, gee whiz, you know, we're doing a really, really good job here. And if they don't like it, I really don't care. You know, <laughs> you know, because it was, it was, it was so demanding, but we went, we got through it and, uh, and I'm eternally grateful to them for, for, uh, putting us through it. And also now I know that if we get a horse in here, uh, that, can go on to another career, then we can we can contact one of the other groups that's okay. accredited by the TAA. And but there are all these groups now. We're working together, and we're not competing. You know, we're helping each other out, and it's made a tremendous. The TAA has made a tremendous uh, difference in in aftercare in the United States. So, so Michael, how do horses end up at old friends? You've obviously built up a, a network in the community. How do you, you know, en- end up deciding who who comes to old friends? Well, that's the hard part because we always have a waiting list. Um, I, uh, I get mostly it's me who gets to decide. I'm easily persuaded though. (laughs) 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 We never have enough room. Now the answer to the question is the way one of the angles that we have is not therapeutic. Although I think people coming to visit these horses is very therapeutic. Mm -hmm. And we have had people with physical and mental in, in injuries that are rehabbing at places like Cardinal Hill Re- Rehabilitation Hospital uh, come here. Uh, but we don't have any specific programs uh, tied to that. Uh, our, our main mission is to make sure the horses are really, really well taken care of, that they get the best health care they can possibly get. And also, I still remember that first thrill when I got to see uh, when I got to see Forgo, and and so we have all these visitors that come from all over the world that that all want to see these amazing athletes. As you know, and, and so you know, our our growth in terms of visitors has been exponential. I think this year we're going to get more than twenty twenty five thousand. I mean, it's just unbelievable how many people share my feelings about these animals. I think you've actually become a little bit of a of a destination for people that visit Central Kentucky, go to the races or whatever. I think that's almost a a planned stop now if they're making a weekend trip or a week long trip down to the bluegrass. Well, we're very 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 fortunate because uh, you know we get really good reviews on TripAdvisor. Expedia.com just named it the best tourist attraction in Kentucky. Oh. So we're reaching out beyond the beyond the racing family and getting people that are just interested in and seeing something a little bit different when they come down to the bluegrass. And Mike, I think it's having been there several times. I think one of the things that's really great is you know you obviously have stars of the turf there. I, I still treasure the picture I have of me and my grandson with uh, Silver Charm. But but you also <laughs> you know really and, not, and little Silver Charm as well, by the way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> but you don't just bring in stars of the turf, do you? You 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 really have a good uh, mix, I would say, of of uh, residents. I would say so. I mean, I have I, I raced the horse up at Suffolk and Rockingham in nineteen. 19- 98 named summer attraction and and he's still with us down here and he was only a, he was a $3,500 claimer 
we have a horse here named Timothy James, who was part of the the Maria Burrell dispersal sale down in Mercer County, you know, a while back. Uh, we have we have horses like Archie's Echo, Sam Elliott, a former uh, uh, racing guru at Parks, uh, found for us up there, and uh, Archie was in a bad situation, so we we got him. He's certainly not. Not famous, but he certainly has uh, has improved uh, down here under the care of Dr. Brian Waldridge and, and and Tim, our farm manager, and Carol, our other farm manager, and Antonio, our other farm manager, uh, and 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 Park Equine. You know, one of the gr- great things, Bill, is that Park Equine Clinic and Dr. Waldridge have done oper- colic operations on several of our horses. Um, they've t- taken them in. And uh, I'll give you a good example. People know Green Mask. Uh, sure. Green Mask was going to be the favorite for the Breeders' Cup Turf Sprint last year when he shattered his leg and he's a gelding. Now, usually that's a death sentence, obviously, for, the, for any horse that does it because right. it's, it's really tough to put him through the rehab because it takes so long and it's painful and it's uncomfortable and it's all of that. But his, his owner, and especially his trainer, Brad Cox, just went out of their way to to pay for an operation, Dr. Richardson up at New Bolton, who did the operation on Barbaro, uh, put together, put hit this horse's leg back together again with 27 screws and metal plate and all this kind of stuff. And he, he's just recovered now, and he's at the farm. So that, and he got hurt last September. So it's been a year, and the horse is so smart and and everything else. But do you know we didn't get one bill? I mean, uh, oh, Kesmar, Chris, Kirsten Johnson, who has, who has the best horse rehab facility. Uh, she has a hyperbaric chamber and a swimming mm. facility and all this other sort of stuff, and a terrific staff over at Kesmark. He was over at Kesmark. You know, he had probably 30 visits to Kesmark. You know, Sally Vans came and picked him up every time he needed to get picked up, and we never got one bill oh, from anybody. And his, his cost, would, it would conservatively cost over more than $80,000, sure. but everybody chipped in and, and now he's doing fabulous and, and, uh, people can come and see him. And, and so we're, we're really, really fortunate that so many people, uh, pitch in and help us. Well, good things, good things happen to good people. My dad always used to well, say, well, you know. uh, I wake up every day, you know, giving uh, great thanks for the fact that I am both standing up <laughs> and standing up here. <laughs> Michael, you had uh, some support uh, early, I think, on in your old friend's days from uh, someone who I think a lot of people would have used the term irascible about, um, and that's the late, great Bobby Frankel. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let me start by saying Jerry Moss of A&M Records, and of course, he and his wife, and uh, owned Zenyatta, sure. Giacomo, and all these great horses. Well, when we first started, a lot of people wouldn't give us a time of day, and they certainly weren't going to trust us with one of their horses. And we we just started, and, and I understand that, I really understand their skepticism. I understand it now. I didn't understand it very much back then, yeah. but I really understand it now. And Jerry gave us a horse named Ruhlman, R-U-H-L-M-A-N-N. Sure. And I don't know how many people remember Ruhlman, but he's a really, really tough horse, a great, a greatest stakes winner and one of the, Jerry Moss's best horses. And, and Bobby had him in New York. Uh, he won a big stakes race in New York. It wasn't the Woodward, but I'll, I'll think, I hope to think of it in a second. Anyway, uh, he'd, gone out to Cali- he, he'd gone out to California and ended up with Charlie Whittingham, and Charlie won the 
a lot of a lot of really good races with him. But anyway, Bobby had him originally, so I was really proud of the fact that the Mosses were going to were going to uh, trust us with Ruhlman. So that summer, I was at Saratoga, and I ran and I saw Bobby Franco off to the side near the paddock, and I was. I, I walked over to him and I said, Mr. Franco, I don't want to bother you, but my name's Michael and I have your great horse movement at the farm. And he looked at me and he goes, that's nice. And he walked away. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. I, you know, I was a movie critic. Everybody hated me. It was great training. <laughs> Later, I'm pretty much in the same spot and there's a tap on my shoulder and it's Bobby. He goes, hey, aren't you that guy with room? And I go, yes, sir. And then he was effusive. He said, man, that was a tough horse. Is he still trying to kill people? Is <laughs> You know, I said, yeah, he's still trying to. And uh, he said, man, he, he, he'd run through rock walls to win a race. He said, I remember once he ran through the, he ran through the, I think it was at Golden Gate, he ran through the fence and ran into the lake. And, and uh, I mean, he just was just all energy and all determination and all willpower. And so we had this two-minute conversation. Well, see, Bobby died nine years ago. And after he died, I got a call from Dottie and Gordo Sheriff, who did all the, a lot of the business uh, arrangements and ran Jerry Moss's operation, and she ran Bobby's operation administratively. Mm-hmm. And she called me a few weeks after Bobby passed, and she said, Bobby left you a few things. He left you some money, mm-hmm. and he left you some other things. So I said, oh, wow, that's nice. I mean, you know, sure. I, I couldn't believe it, really, because I didn't even know him. And I think over the years, it's amounted to about a quarter of a million dollars. <laughs> and we've got 90% of his trophies. Oh, wow. One day, Diane and I came back from a movie. And uh, about 4.30 in the afternoon, our garage was filled with wooden crates. And I started opening them. And, you know, there's, there's, there, there's just all these, all these uh, you know, just like five Eclipse Awards. And there's mm. two Arlington Million trophies. and I mean, it's just unbelievable. Oh, and... Wow. And I'm actually glad you mentioned that because we just reached an agreement with the Racing Museum and Hall of Fame up in Saratoga. And next summer, uh, we're going to have an exhibit of Bobby's Bobby's uh, Bobby's trophies from old friends uh, to, to to coordinate with the 10th anniversary of his unfortunate death. Oh, that's fantastic! Wow. So that's Bobby. I mean, you know, my my fundraising methods are not exactly conventional and. Uh, you know, my motto is, you know, if, if you're doing a good job, people will want to help you and will, will want to donate horses. They'll want to donate money. They'll want to help you keep going because they want to feel like they're part of something significant. And that's so I, I, my motto is don't ask, just tell. <laughs> well, well, we'll do that. Tell us how do people contribute to to old friends farm and what else can they do to support old friends? Well, farm? all kinds of ways. I mean, one of the fun ways is. We sell shares in all our horses for a hundred dollars. Okay. So people can they get a certificate and they get a photograph, and uh, of uh, of whatever horse they like on the farm. And you know, ever since we got we got Silver Charm home from home from uh, Japan, uh, it's been like having Elvis here. Uh, he, he's been uh, he's been a terrific uh, fundraiser for us. And really, the horses do raise the funds because people come from all over the world to see them so they can get a certificate we have a really nice uh, gift shop you know we're a 501c3 nonprofit, so they just make a straight donation it's it's tax deductible um we can you know if they want to call the office people are interested you know we're we're looking to expand up in new york 
Uh, right. It's been very, very popular up there. And we're, we're, I'm working with Jack Knowlton, the owner of Funny Side, sure. and uh, to try and uh, expand up there because the awareness for aftercare in the racing community and the recognition by the racing community that uh, aftercare is a really, really important aspect of their lives. I tell people all the time, I say, look, you know, people race them, you know, people breed them, they buy them, and they, and they sell them, and, and we're a professional organization that retires horses. And that's the way we, we, we want to be seen, not not as a rescue or this or that or the other thing, just as a really professional organization that knows how to take care of uh, geriatric horses. <laughs> and, Michael, I, I did want to ask you a question about your New York operation, too, which I have not yet had a chance to visit, but will on my next trip up to Saratoga. Um, I understand that the star of the farm is actually a horse who never won a race. Uh, can, you, yeah. <laughs> can you tell us about yeah. that guy? Zippy Chippy, yeah, over a hundred. He's banned from every racetrack in the United States, literally, for being unfair to the betting public. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because uh, early in his career, he was ridden by Edgar Prado and Mike Smith and all these good jockeys. But anyway, he, um, you know, he just didn't want to race and. You read his comments in the comment, little comment line at the end of the past performances. It's dwelt, dwelt, race without interest. You know, I mean, it's just a, a tone poem to futility. Just <laughs> why well, put him out there a hundred times with those comment lines? Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I bet on several of those. <laughs> well, we and, all have. Uh, yeah. And he uh, knows uh, who he is, and I think he's finally found his his uh, role in life, which is to just stand there and uh, be admired by others. Be, be, be <laughs> Especially the standing part. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He, he can dwelt, dwelt right in place there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And oh, there's, a book, uh, there's a book that was written uh, about him by a Canadian writer, so he's got his own biography now. And it, I, think, I think Joanne Pepper, who does a wonderful job out there with her husband Mark and all their great volunteers at, in Greenfield Center, uh, in uh, right outside Saratoga, they do a great job, and I think she has even has a few copies that she got Zippy to autograph. So, oh, wow. in, her, in her in her gift <laughs> shop. So that's great. That's great. Yeah. Well, Michael, I know you you have you know all this film background, and I can't let you go without asking you a few film related questions. Um, <laughs> tell me your your top five movies of all time. Well, let's see. I, in, in, not necessarily in order, but in order of my interest. Um, it would be uh, uh, Chinatown with uh, Jack Nicholson sure. and you know John Huston. As a matter of fact, uh, the whole thing, uh, my whole movie career actually was based on uh, uh, was helped. Let me say it wasn't based, but it was very much accelerated by my relationship with John Huston. It all became because when I showed up at an in an interview one time to talk to John, I had a racing form stuck in my pocket. We ended up going to the races that afternoon. We became oh, friends wow. for years and years and years. <laughs> he was tremendously helpful. Oh, wow. It's all because of a, all because of a racing form. So I'd say Chinatown would be there. Uh, Casablanca would definitely be there. I got to be really good friends with Julius Epstein, one of the writers of uh, Theo's Casablanca. Grandfather, and correct? Th Theo's grandfather, that's yeah. correct. Yeah. That's correct. I remember I got to be friends with Theo's father, Leslie, through through Julius. Okay. And Leslie's a terrific novelist and teaches in the master's program in creative writing at Boston University to this day. 
Anyway, uh, when Theo was like seven or eight years old, I was over at the house, and and uh, his mother, Irene, was talking, and she goes, look, look what he's doing. He was, had baseball cards out, and he's making trades for the Red Sox. And she said to me, straight up, he's going to end up being general manager of the Red oh, Sox. Oh, my. Wow. So years later, wow. years, years later, when he was, yeah. I said, well, Eileen, your prediction came true. How crazy is that? She goes, I know, and he lives like a block and a half from me, and I only see him like two or three times a year. So it was a, it was a mixed blessing for the family, but Theo's <laughs> obviously got on to do some, some great things in baseball. Yeah, but uh, so I would say Casablanca, uh, Chinatown, and I think I think any number of Billy Wilder movies, um, you know, Sunset Boulevard, uh, Some Like It Hot, and then... Uh, and then Stanley Kubrick, I would think, I would think I'd have to put the uh, Doctor Strangelove on that list. Oh, those are some great ones. Yeah, they're worth watching. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, and uh, Billy Wilder, did he do Stalag Seventeen? Also, was that a Billy? Yes, yes. He, yeah, Stalag Seventeen. He did yeah. Double Indemnity. There's a case to be made that Billy Wilder made the best film noir ever, Double Indemnity. Oh, yeah. The best melodrama yeah. ever, Sunset Boulevard. The best comedy ever. You know, some like it some hot. Like it hot. Yeah. You go through the whole, oh, wow. the whole list of his oeuvres yeah. is, is is unbelievable, and he was a wonderful human being too. I really liked him a lot. That's 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 a pretty interesting arc right there. <laughs> hey, Michael. Yeah. Since we veered off into Red Sox territory, I I got to ask you, what's your favorite Red Sox team of all time? Is it one of the three recent World Champions? Is it some other? Well, you know, I went to school in Boston so I could live near Fenway Park. Honest to God, my parents went to their grade not knowing that I went to Boston <laughs> University because the dormitory was in Kenmore Square. Right, right there. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think my favorite team was the 76 team because I stayed out all night in line to get tickets. And oh, I, yeah. when I finally got to the window, I said, I want, you can buy four tickets. I said, I want one to each game. They said, no, we're not selling them that way. You've got to buy two two games. You can either have the first and the sixth or the second and the seventh. Well, being an old time Red Sox fan, I knew the Reds were going to come in and beat, beat them. So, uh, I didn't want to take the seventh game cause I didn't think there was going to be one. And so I took the second and the, and the sixth. And of course oh, the second boy. Louis Tian shut them out. And I think the Red Sox won six to nothing. And then in the, and then of course in the sixth game was when Colin Fisk hit his great home run. So, Oh man, uh, great one! Yeah, that was a that was a yeah. great team. That was a great series. Uh, that you know uh, they they couldn't follow it up the following year, and then of course seventy eight was uh, we well, we won't talk about seventy eight. Yeah, really. <laughs> That's like go through. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I'm still a Red Sox fan. You can't get it out of your blood. I, oh, I, you I look at the scores every day, and uh, and uh, I look at the, the Celtics, and you know I'm you know I miss going to games occasionally, but most of the time I don't miss anything. I just I just love who I am. So, so what, what is the it's thing working that, out all right? What is the thing you miss the most about Boston? And and actually, uh, the companion question: What's the thing you miss the least about Boston? Let's, let's ask that too. Well, obviously, uh, the thing I miss the least is the traffic. Traffic. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Yeah. That's what I. That's yeah. what I miss the least by far. I mean, the traffic's getting a little bad down here, but it's but I'm well prepared for it. Um, I miss the old days of the Globe when the sports department was you know Peter Gammons and Bob Ryan. Willie McDonough and Bud Collins doing tennis. I mean, and Jackie McMullen and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and Nick Cafardo. And, you know, I miss, I miss a lot of that. I miss when, when the guys on the spotlight team, we all played basketball together. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I was just, you know, working at the Globe at that particular time uh, uh, was really, really just an amazing ex- experience. And I've been, I've been very fortunate because I've had, I've had two really good jobs. Not even jobs. I don't know what they are. There's some other word we have to invent because Avocation. A, a job always, a job, yeah, <laughs> job always means, uh, always seems to mean work. And <laughs> I never felt like, I never felt like, uh, the writing for the Globe or 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 uh, here at All Friends has ever been work. Well, I know, and you know, my dad uh, also worked in the newspaper business in Boston in that yeah. time period, and uh, I, I recall very strongly the feeling of family when you would walk through the newsroom there and that camaraderie. And you know, sadly, that that business has just changed forever. You know, now you drive down the Southeast Expressway, and the Globe building is still there, but it's not you know, used anymore. And of course the Herald building is completely gone. It's, uh, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, well, everything's different. Well, yeah, some things change for the better and some things don't. That's that's life, right? Yeah. I guess that's the way it works. (laughs) (laughs) Michael, thank you very much for your time. I hope we can welcome you back again sometime soon. As a measure of my thanks, I'm going to reach into my goodie grab bag of gift certificates and award you with, (laughs) uh, here we go. Here's a $25 gift certificate, Michael, for Valley Steakhouse. Oh, that's great. I remember that place very fondly. Well, then you remember very fondly the Friday night double lobster <laughs> special, right? Yeah, I do. Believe me. And boy, oh, that, maybe that's what I miss the most. That's my friend. I there think it's lobster. <laughs> All right, Michael. Well, listen, thanks very much for your time, and we hope to uh, talk to you again soon. All right, Bill. Thanks for your interest. Really appreciate it. All right. Take care. Have a great day. All right. You bet. Bye-bye. So now we turn to what will be our regular guest handicapper segment. Each week, a guest handicapper will select one race for the upcoming weekend of their choosing and will run us through the field, their assessment, and any possible wagering strategies they might recommend. We'll do them a favor and we won't keep score. Well, not religiously anyway. We're more interested in the process they go through to come to a selection and a wagering strategy. This week's guest handicapper is an old friend of mine, Matt Packard. Matt and I met many moons ago when thrown together as a result of a merger of our two companies. In that sixth sense way that horse players have, we quickly realized we shared the same degeneracy. And from there, as you can imagine, chaos has ensued. So, Matt, with that, I say welcome to the show. Tell us uh, about the race you selected, the contenders, your assessment, and your thoughts on wagering strategy. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for having me. So, Bill, I selected uh, the first race at Belmont tomorrow, so Saturday the 29th. Uh, it's a six-furlong turf race for state-bred uh, maiden specials, and it's a field of nine with one first-time starter. Uh, so a lot of lightly raced horses, which is uh, a type of race that I enjoy, and and so I thought I'd uh, talk about that one. Good. So what I'm going to do, Bill, is is go through the um, <clears throat> go through the uh, entries in order. I'm going to skip the one that I like, and then and then talk about that one last. So uh, first up is the two, Mr. Moybien. 15 to 1 morning line for uh, Rudy Rodriguez, and, uh, and Colin is up. Uh, this one uh, showed poorly on the dirt first out and is now uh, going over to the turf. Uh, the breeding suggests that there, um, you know, there could be an improvement going to the turf. Um, and in addition to that, uh, the horse had a rough trip last time. Uh, having said that, I don't, I don't like the connections, so I don't consider that one a live contender. Okay. I'm moving to the three awesome adversary. It's a 30 to 1 uh, morning line. Uh, again, very poor connections and very poor running efforts the first two times out. 
Um, if you want to find a reason to like that horse, the horse was gelded on the, uh, September 13th and is a, has a five-pound bug up, but I still uh, don't like the horse. That gelding may have been the, the award for his uh, zero buyer efforts, his two zero buyer efforts perhaps. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, I'm going to skip the four. Okay. So I'll go to the five, mend up 20 to 1. Again, very very weak connections, which don't speak well to the horse's chances at first asking. Um, breed is, is okay though for first first time out and first, so at a big price. Okay. Um, I'm going to skip Woodbury and Beachside, uh, both of which are MTOs, and talk about the favorite, the number seven Beachfront. <clears throat> so this horse just lost by a neck uh, at first asking, uh, same uh, roughly the same distance and and uh, surface and class level. Jeremiah um, uh, Englehart certainly strong in the spot. Jose Ortiz, you couldn't really ask for better there. Uh, seven to five morning line. I actually think this horse is worth taking a stand against um, <clears throat> for a couple of reasons. Uh, the extra half furlong may not be to his liking. This horse really isn't bred for the um, mm. for the turf and may have just been showing speed the first time out. Also, I thought had a very favorable trip first out, despite um, perhaps having to wait a little bit at the top of the, of the stretch and did have to duck down to the uh, to the hedge. Uh, okay. late uh, to make the lead. Um, but I think uh, this horse uh, is vulnerable here, um, has not met the, uh, kind of like the par for the phrase. Mm-hmm. So I think this may be a, a vulnerable favorite. Uh, moving to the eight, Gray's Image, 92 morning line. Uh, look at the replay on all of them, but this one particularly didn't impress in the replay to me. Uh, not particularly well-bred for the spot, in my opinion. Although, again, Engelhardt is, is strong, and uh, the... Um, Sire is a pretty good uh, state-bred sire in this spot, so, okay. uh, but, but I'm going to pass on that one. Um, <clears throat> just as an aside, there was an early entry called Le Gros Bill who was scratched, so I'm sure you're going to hear that. Um, that might describe my wagering <laughs> efforts, uh, Gross Bill, yeah. <laughs> so moving to the nine, uh, Keon, D.C., uh, three one morning line. You know, the, the replays there didn't do anything for me. To me, not particularly well-bred, weak connections. Um, I mean, from a trainer standpoint, I do think that there's a positive jockey change there, but I think at a short price, I would pass on that one. Uh, finally, the 10 Rojo, uh, five to one, uh, again, don't like the, uh, don't like the trainer, don't like the breeding, um, you know, could well make the lead, but from the outside, don't, don't love that one's chances. And so with that, I'll jump back to the four, which is the horse that I'm interested in. So Reichen, uh, 12 to one. Um, didn't show much at first asking, although I will say if you watch the replay, lost a lot of ground at the break. was within uh, two lengths of the lead um, on the, th- the third call uh, and then just kind of let it go. Um, I think this horse is well-bred for turf sprinting and will step up in the spot. Um, normally I'd be hesitant to, to bet uh, Donk on the turf. Uh, however, actually actually has some, some good he does. Uh, angles in yeah. the spot. And Manny Franco was certainly capable. So, it, and I think this horse will be every bit of the uh, morning line of twelve to one, if not more for that. So that's my my pick um, for a wagering strategy. The other thing I like about this race is that there's just not a lot else in this race. So I think if you if you box up the favorite with the four, uh, win place on the four, and maybe throw the two in at a price, I, I just don't see a lot of other horses there that are going to kind of uh, get in the way of your bet there. So that, that's my play. I'm uh, really glad that you selected this race map because it's one, uh, as you know, I'm going to be at Belmont on Saturday, and it's one that uh, in my kind of follow the races from front to back order that I looked at first, uh, being the first race. And uh, 
I uh, cottoned onto the four right away. I saw that wide post position. Uh, I think the breeding is decent. And Donk does have, if you think about the second half of the Saratoga meet, the Donk barn started catching fire a little bit. Um, and uh, the other thing I like, uh, Manny Franco, is I don't think he's an underrated rider anymore. Uh, he's, he's actually a very good rider. I think he's particularly good on the turf, too. So um, I like that yeah. pick. You and I are going to be on the same horse. That's dangerous, as you know, from experience. That's a, that's a good thing. Yeah, and Bill, I'm going to give one bonus selection. So as I was watching the re- replay on Beachfront, um, I'll just say this. Uh, he got run down by Rhythm with Soul. If Beachfront wins impressively here, um, I would take a long look at Rhythm with Soul in the pole room. Uh, that was a pretty impressive close. Yeah, that, great, great call. Time. Thank you. Great. Very good. All right, two for the price of one. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. We'll, we'll uh, take a look at and see how we did next week. But like I said, we won't keep score uh, unless unless you unless you hit it, and then we will keep score. All right? <laughs> if, the four, if the four wins, we're keeping score. <laughs> All right. Good, good. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Now we turn to the closing segment of the podcast, which I call the big score. In this segment, we're going to have guests and listeners who share their stories about big scores they made at the track. Where, when, how, we'd love for you to share your story with us. Simply get in touch with us and let us know what your big score story is. We'd love to share. I'm going to kick off the big score by bringing you back to December 28, 2005, when there was a more than $500,000 pick six carryover from the last day of racing prior to the Christmas holiday at the Big A Aqueduct in South Ozone Park, New York. Of course, that size pot got my attention, so with a 10-day break over the holidays and the initial past performances being published on December 23rd, I put myself to work analyzing each race in the sequence. I probably spent an hour or two every day between the 23rd and the 28th, including Christmas Day, digging into the races, studying track trends, trainer-jockey combinations, etc., etc., etc. That was in the old days of the Aqueduct Inner Track, a notoriously speed-favoring surface, one I found that played even more that way when there had been a few days break in the racing action, like December 28th. The fact that there were only going to be races on the one predictable surface, and that we were looking at either six furlong or two-turn routes only, was also a factor that favored taking a swing, in my opinion. No turf races with their cavalry charge results to make the task more difficult. When race day came, I was working in the now trendy, then industrial, seaport district of Boston. A short drive through the Ted Williams Tunnel to Suffolk Downs, which I drove to at lunchtime to submit my $96 worth of tickets, one for $72 and a backup ticket for $24. On the main ticket, two singles, two races with two selections, and two races with three selections. Back to work I went after placing my bets, and I was actually quite busy. So busy, in fact, that I didn't get a chance to check the results until the third race in the sequence had gone off. And, lo and behold, I was three for three. Now, of course, my superstitious side kicked in, and I decided I had to keep doing what I was doing at work and not obsessing over the races. So memos began to rain furiously out of my email account. Phone calls were made, contracts were reviewed, all of that done with unusual vigor. When I looked at the fourth race results, I realized I had selected correctly again. Back to work, I went even more furiously. But when I looked at the fifth race results and realized I was now five for five, work ended pretty quickly. You've never seen a workstation shut down as fast as mine did that day. I raced out to the car, desperately wanting to watch the last race live at the Suffolk simulcast. And, of course, ran into the mother of all post-holiday traffic jams. Switching lanes furiously, impatiently blasting the horn, swearing a blue streak, nothing moved that traffic. So by the time I walked into the simulcast area, I knew that my fate was sealed, one way or the other. As I turned the corner 
What to my wondering eyes did appear but the name of the horse I had singled in the last sequence. His name was Show Ready, which I'll never forget, on top of the tote board summary on the simulcast. Now trembling, I had to wait for them to cycle through to the pick six payoff, which amounted to $14,000 plus. Firmly grasping the winning ticket in hand, I went up to the cashier. He ran the ticket through, which when I learned I also got paid for the five out of six combinations I had, making the total score more than $15,000. Feeling as giddy as a schoolboy, I then watched in horror as the cashier reached into his till and started counting out $100 bills. I asked him what he was doing, and he said, I'm getting your payoff. Whoa, I said, whoa, can you cut me a check? Leaving unspoken the sentiment that I didn't want to be seen stuffing $150, $100 bills into my pocket by the now, to me, very suspicious-looking crowd. Finally, check in hand, I made the drive home, one which seemed to be on a magic carpet ride despite the post-holiday traffic. I walked in the door, prepared to give my wife the good news. Before I could speak, she stopped me with a worried look and said, I've got something to tell you. What is it, I said. She informed me that her and my daughter had gone wedding dress shopping that day for my oldest wedding, and that gasp, it had cost quite a bit more than she expected. I merely smiled and said, don't worry about it, we've got this covered. Having expected a round of WTF, she looked at me puzzled until I opened up the check that had been burning a hole in my pocket. Needless to say, crisis averted. You've got a big score story to share as well. Please post it on our Can Do Facebook page or email us at CanDoBillDe, that's C-A-N-D-O-B-I-L-L-D, at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week.